influence is what matters. So the only way you're able to build influence with your founders is by building an amazing relationship with them. And that takes time. They gotta feel like you're their friend, gotta feel like you truly have their back so that they can come to you and share the difficult truths. I don't want founders to only be telling me the nice stuff. I want them to be telling me what they're struggling with, what's not going right so that we can help them overcome those obstacles and so that they truly trust our opinion and our advice. You've got to build that relationship so that you're able to influence them. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Tanuja Raja is a partner at M Venture Partners, a Singapore-based early-stage VC. Before MVP, she founded dating startup LoveSpark and was launch manager at Entrepreneur First. Hi, Tanuja. So nice to meet you today. And so nice to get to know you finally. I feel like I've always wanted to get on a chat with you and I never just got the chance to do so. <laughs> Likewise. I mean, thank, thanks for having me here today, Amanda. I've like, been following your journey, following back Scoop's journey, and really excited to be here. I think for me, there are a bunch of things that stood out about you, especially after I featured you on Vascoop's Icebreakers. I was so surprised about a lot of things, so excited to dive into those. But, you know, the first question I always ask people is, what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? I grew up in, in Malaysia, so I was born in Kuala Lumpur, but I spent most of my life in a little city, maybe about an hour drive away called Shah Alam. I think my childhood was very traditional. I have very traditional Indian parents. Like literally my dad was an engineer and my mom was an English teacher, right? You couldn't get more stereotypical than that. And I have a younger sister, a year and a half younger than us and the four of us were really close. My parents always instilled in me this study really hard, get a good stable job. I think I studied really hard. I didn't follow the second part of that that statement, get a good, stable job, like I never did. But I definitely studied hard and studied for a very long time. So Maybe the length of your study was the compensation for the stable job. <laughs> maybe, maybe. They couldn't say anything anymore because i like gone all the way. But they're, they're, I mean, thankfully, very supportive in, in all my decisions, whatever I decided to do. They would tell me if they disagreed, but at the end of the day, they'd have my back. So, And then what did your childhood look like? What were the hobbies that you were into? And did you study in Malaysia, et cetera, all those things? Sure. So I was actually, you know, shockingly uh, very into music. Interestingly enough, I wanted to be a Broadway singer when I grew up. As a child, I loved musicals. And I loved dance and I loved, you know, playing the piano. And I was all of that, was really into the arts and, and not much into, into the science. I mean, I liked biology, which is what I ended up doing. But I truly, I think my passion was, was the arts, was music, was drama. And I spent a lot of time doing that. In fact, like every weekend, my mom or dad would have to drive an hour and a half so I could join a children's choir. It was like a children's opera choir in Malaysia called Opera Fest. I don't think they exist anymore, but they were quite It sounds like a big I... deal. It sounds like a big deal. Opera Fest. <laughs> opera Fest. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a recording. There's probably a CD somewhere out there because we did actually cut an album and we put on a musical every year. So I think I participated in two or three I definitely remember participating in all of them. And, and that was my love. Like, I, I absolutely loved doing that. I still love Broadway and musicals. Like, I sit in the theater, sit in seats, and, like, I'm smiling from year to year. But when, when I decided, like, look, I need to get serious. I need to think about what I'm going to, you know, actually major in, go to university and study, I realized that music probably wasn't the thing for me because... It wasn't exceptional in it, right? And to be an artist, to make it as an artist, or at least that was my opinion, you needed to be the, the tops, right? And so what was I good at? I was good in bio. And I liked bio. 
Initially, I thought I would be a genetic counselor, which if you rewind maybe 12, 15 years was, you know, a, a, a new thing, right? I was like, wow, I can merge my love for science with helping people, which is what I always like, I, you know, wanted to, to be with people. I wanted to be interacting with people. I didn't necessarily want to be a scientist in a lab, right? So that's exactly what I did. Like I went to Australia, I did my degree there. I majored in genetics, but while I was doing my degree, I realized that genetics wasn't my love, immunology was my love. And when I finished my degree, I found a a supervisor, a lecturer in a university that I really vibed with. I thought that, you know, he was excellent. He was a great mentor. And then I decided to do my PhD under him. So I spent another five years in the lab completing my PhD in immunology. And I obviously gave up my dream of being a genetic counselor, but thinking that immunology was the thing that I was going to do. I think while I was writing my thesis is when it dawned on me that, hey, I have spent so much time in the lab. I haven't really thought about whether this is the career I want to build for myself. And that's why I decided to take a little bit of a break and try my hand at entrepreneurship. And that's a whole different story. You can talk to me about what I ended up building and why I didn't end up building anything to do with my to do with my studies in the lab. So I, th- I think I want to ask one question first. So when you're doing drama, you're doing musicals, doing Broadway type things, what kind of roles would you play? And what roles did you want to play? <laughs> I obviously, gosh, this is going to sound really bad, but obviously I loved the limelight um, and I wanted I wanted the lead roles always. I didn't end up getting the lead role. I maybe ended up getting, uh, I was always in the ensemble, but I had a little bit of a solo part. So it was good enough for me. You know, my favorite, my favorite musical is actually coming out soon, a live action version of The Little Mermaid. I feel like that the music in, 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 in that, I guess, cartoon or stories, just beautiful. And like, what's your favorite musical then, apart from The Little Mermaid? Like from the times when you were younger, when you were actually doing musicals? Yeah, when I was young, I think I I really enjoyed like Mamma Mia and Grease and, you know, more of like the pop type, type of musicals. And then as I grew up, I actually saw a musical in Australia. It's not very well known. It's called Love Never Dies. And it's actually part two of Phantom of the Opera. So it is a musical that's written by Andrew Lloyd Webber. And it talks about what happened like 10 years later. So when Phantom of the Opera ends, you know, fast forward 10 years, the story is, you know, it starts from then. And the music is amazing. The scenes are amazing. The sets are amazing. The costumes are, you know, beautiful. And that's one, that's probably my most favorite musical. Is that still happening anywhere? I did not know. Phantom of the Opera had a part two. <laughs> I, I love know, the first I one. Really, you must, yeah, you, you have to watch it. I don't think it's showing anymore. Like it was playing. I knew it, it started in London, obviously. And then Australia did a version of it. And I think they went to New York as well. But I think it's like all over now. It for some reason never became like super popular. Even if Phantom of the Opera was super popular. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Irony. exactly. Okay, I have to keep my eyes peeled then. I have to. <laughs> there is a full, like the full recorded version on YouTube of the Australian of the Australian production. Okay, that's where I'm going. Maybe my weekend will be spent on that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, so now like on university, I think. I think what was super interesting for me was that you actually went to Australia to do your degree. Was that something you always wanted to do, like study overseas? Yeah, my mom was quite insistent that my sister and I study abroad because she thought that it would expose us to new cultures, different people, you know, open our eyes. And I'm I'm really glad she did because going on travels and holidays is great. I know a lot of people don't even have the opportunity to do that. We were very fortunate to be able to do that as a family every year. We traveled the world, but living somewhere, actually living somewhere, paying rent, doing your grocery, being alone. <laughs> and, you know, like all these little things, right? Building a whole new group of friends and support system. 
from scratch. And it's all very useful traits to have or skills to build in life. I chose Australia and not, you know, the UK or the US, which I guess are like the two other common places that lots of Malaysians go to because I had lots of family in Australia and I thought that I might migrate there if I liked it. I ended up not migrating because my boyfriend was in KL and I wanted to come home after a three, four year long distance relationship. And also because my supervisor, whom I did my PhD with, was in Malaysia at that time. So I decided to come back uh, to, to, to Malaysia. So your career and your relationship sort of aligned, bringing you back to, to Malaysia. <laughs> bringing me back home. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So how was how it to actually decide that, okay, I want to do a PhD and study for like a lot more years than just my undergraduate? Was that a hard decision to make? No, it really wasn't. You know, I might get a lot of flack for this, but like you imagine you're going into university and you're doing a very basic degree in science. It's very, very basic. If you graduate with just a degree in science, you know, what are the options available for you? You could be probably, I don't know, pharmaceutical sales rep. You could be a lab assistant. I knew those were not roles that I wanted. I wanted to go deep into something. I didn't want to have just a very kind of superficial review of lots of different studies right fields of study that's why I want to do my PhD I actually love studying I love researching I love uncovering new things and I think that's also why I like being a VC right you learn something new every day you you know you meet people with different ideas you're open to be proven wrong strong beliefs weekly held and with with doing with doing a PhD right you are actually uncovering new information you're actually putting out something new into this world something that no one else has discovered before I mean that's crazy that's just not consuming knowledge that's actually giving to the body of knowledge and I thought that was really interesting doing a PhD well obviously when I was doing a PhD I thought that was the hardest thing that I could ever accomplish and do until I started building a startup and then I thought, oh my gosh, doing a PhD is actually easy <laughs> in comparison. Super interesting. So like you would say that doing a PhD is less of just studying and it's also creating as well, not just yeah, reading the books. Exactly. Definitely. Right. I think you hit the books probably in the first year leading up to your PhD. You consume, you read, you understand as much as possible of everything that's been published in this field that you're now going to, to embark on. But then you are putting out something new into the world, right? The goal is to publish papers, to publish journal articles. And so therefore you have to be putting out something new. And so you go into the lab and you experiment, right? Or at least that's what a PhD in immunology, which is what I did, is all about. And you go into the lab, you have a hypothesis, just like any scientist, and you go and prove that the hypothesis is either right or wrong, and you take it from there. So you said that you initially wanted to do genetics and then you shifted to immunology. What made you realize that you're really into immunology? And I think you did like cancer-related research as well, right? Correct. I felt like it was more immediately applicable to the human being or to health. Obviously, genetics is as well. But what I was studying was very base-based genetics. What I wanted to do was study something that could have almost immediate impact. And immunology seemed like like that. Plus, I don't know, I just really enjoyed studying about our immune system. I think it's absolutely fascinating how our immune system keeps us alive and healthy and is working so hard in the background every single day, although we don't take very good care of it. So I think one of the things that really stuck out to me about your immunology degree plus your journey as a founder is what you said earlier, which is that you didn't found a company related to your degree in immunology or anything like that. Yeah, I wanted to, to be honest. This was probably 2011, 2012, and I was thinking about starting a company. But I was in Malaysia in 2010, 2011, 2012. And one, to find a co-founder that was willing to leave the lab or leave their careers as a postgrad, as a, a, 
supervisor and start a biotech health tech company was incredibly difficult. Secondly, you need, it's like a really capex heavy thing to start, right? You need lab space, you need equipment, you need reagents, et cetera, et cetera. And there were not that many bio companies being built in Southeast Asia, let alone in Malaysia. Right. There's very little support for it and there was very little VC funding. And so I ended up leaving that aside, although I felt that I actually did uncover something really cool in the lab um, and build something else instead that I had zero background in. And looking back and knowing everything that I know today, I probably would never have started that company, but I didn't know the first thing about being a founder and running a startup. And again, you have to remember that this was like 2011, 2012. So there wasn't, you know, there wasn't, there weren't like accelerator programs and venture building programs and lots of angel investors and lots of funds to give you advice. There were few, much, much fewer. Right. Um, so beyond just sorry, the fund. I just yeah. did it, right? Like I was like, like, you know, I'm young. I'll give it a shot. If it doesn't work out, that's okay. It'll still be a great learning opportunity. I was really lucky that I could afford to do so. And I had the support of my family. And so I did it. It really was a lifestyle business. Um, I to, So for those who, who don't know, right, the company I started is a company called Love Spark without the A, because that's the domain name that we could get and afford. And the easiest way to describe it is sort of like Airbnb experiences, but for two. So we targeted couples that wanted to go out into the city and explore and uncover really unique experiences for two. And I think our best-selling dates or experience was a private Argentinian tango class followed by a 30-minute foot massage. So yeah, these were the kind of dates that we would curate. We would go to the best restaurants, the best spas, et cetera, and put up things that you could just, you know, with a click of a button buy that you could not put together yourself. And unlike Groupon or use Groupon on our fave, you didn't have to print out anything or show a QR code because imagine you're going on a date, right? So you just go to the restaurant and say, hey, I have a reservation under my name and everything would be done for you. So we didn't earn a lot on each date, but you know we had much higher margins on the add-ons like concierge service or chauffeur-driven limousine or if they wanted help in putting together an engagement surprise and that kind of thing. So as you can imagine, difficult to scale, margins are low, you need lots and lots of different dates that are all of the best quality because again, these are like, you know, you're taking out your, your loved one. Yeah, it was tough. It was definitely a tough business to be in. So how would it work? Like I'd go to the website, then I'd like click the different experiences for like the date I want to go on that day. And then yeah, it would bundle exactly. it together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. So initially when we launched, that was exactly how it was. You go on, you probably see like 25 different experiences and then you can add on these extra, I guess, like services, right? As we progressed, we would then divide or you know, curate dates for you. So if you were more of an adventurous person, you could try these different things. If you were more romantic or a foodie person, you could try these different things. Or we could you could suggest things that you wanted and we would help put that together for you as well. So it's like a personality or theme-based day then instead of just one date. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although it started off with just like a, a small experience. How did you decide that you actually wanted to be a founder? Like, I know that you wanted to, you know, leave the PhD and not get into that career. But how did you realize, like, okay, I think the next thing that I want to do is be a founder. I mean, you could have gone to maybe corporate or another job or just done something else. <laughs> well, two things really influenced me. One is I saw how the startup ecosystem was blossoming in, in Melbourne when I was there. And, you know, I was definitely exposed to, to that world and to some of the founders that were building cool things there. And secondly, my husband was or is extremely on entrepreneurial so he you know watching him build his own business you know grow a team scale it etc kind of put the the itch in me to try my hand in it as well how did it start like how did you get the first idea to build love spark what was the main like inspiration and what made you say okay this is the idea <laughs> 
Well, for one, like I was the person that was always going out into town and trying new things and trying to try the new restaurant. You know, I was always the person that my family and friends would call to say, hey, Tanu, is there a new play in town? Is there a new show that we should be checking out? Is this restaurant any good? And so I thought, since I love doing this anyway, since I love checking out new spots and going for cool experiences, why don't I just put this all together into a website? So you see really little thinking, real thinking gone behind it. Just kind of like, this is what I like to do. This is what people call me up for anyway. Why don't I just try and create, you know, a business out of it without thinking about much else? And I think you mentioned that, you know, if you could go back in time, this wouldn't be the business that you would have built. What is the main reason that you say that? Is it more of the margins and the profitability side or is it something else? I think it's a it's a nice lifestyle business. So, you know, we were obviously generating decent revenue. We were profitable from quite early on because, you know, it's it's easy to scale something like this right online. Just need people to help you find those experiences and put it together. But we, I knew like probably a few months in, though I never really accepted it until a few years in, that this was never going to be as big as I wanted it to be. And um, I think like all founders have this issue, right? You are in love with your idea. You think you can make it work no matter what. There's too much at stake to admit defeat a couple of months into your journey or a year into your journey. And so you keep going, you keep going, even though the signs are clearly there, that this is probably not the thing that's going to, you know, as you define it, make you successful. What were the most painful moments of your like founder journey? Oh, wow. Well, firstly, it was painful. So I say painful, but also interesting and exciting. I, I mentioned I like to learn new things. When I was embarking on this journey, I realized like I didn't know the first thing about building a business. I didn't even know what SEO and how to enable online payments, for example, like just Google and figure all of this stuff out myself, right? Because I was a scientist, like I spent all my life in the lab. But I think the painful moments were probably towards the end when I was coming to the realization that this is definitely something that I will have to shut down. Isn't something that I, you know, I have spent three years of my life on. I haven't really made the progress that I was hoping to achieve. It's not a success as I defined it or as I define success. I have finished my PhD in immunology and now not built on my science work or research and science moves so quickly. So it's really like, what am I going to do next? You know, I'm probably not fit to go back into the lab to get any great job. I, I could find maybe, you know, lab assistant or whatever. But just felt like, to put it super bluntly, like I had really, truly failed. And at that time, I found it very difficult to separate me being a failure from my startup has failed. You know, I felt like I had failed. I failed my parents. I failed my family. I failed my friends, people who had trusted me, my angel investors, failed myself, you know, because now I'm like in this limbo of not being sure what to do. Definitely had some panic attacks, I'm not going to lie, around that time until I figured out my next move. I think you also mentioned to me earlier, like outside the recording, that there was even a time that like the media featured you guys and called you the next unicorn of Malaysia. How did, how did it feel when you saw that or heard that article the first time? Yeah, I remember exactly where I was when this article came out and I was made known that it had come out because... People started WhatsApping me. People started sending me emails and messages and WhatsApps and saying like, oh my God, congratulations, Tanu. You know, Love Spark must be doing so well. I'm really excited. I had no clue that this was coming out. No one had interviewed me. And funnily enough, I was, you know, at that very moment, like thinking about shutting this down when this article came out. It's like, you know, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, fluff and fake hashtag fake news out there and so it's really taught me actually to read everything to consume everything that I'm seeing out there with a pinch of salt people you know especially in the startup world there is a lot of fake it till you make it every conference you go to every founder meetup you attend 
everyone's doing well. Everyone's business is going well. Everyone's raising their next round. Everyone's hitting new milestones. I felt like I was the only one failing. Obviously, I know this is not true. But at that point, I thought like, gosh, I'm the only one that doesn't know how to do this. And now these articles come out and it couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. So that definitely made it harder shutting everything down because I had a lot more explaining to do to everyone. Right. And then how did you decide to actually finally shut it down? Was it like one decision or like one realization like, okay, now I have to really shut it down? Or did it really take a really long time of convincing yourself? It took a really long time of convincing myself because I think by that time I had spent more than a year and a half on the company and trying to grow it. And so I felt like this was, you know, opportunity cost, time cost as well. But ultimately it comes down to this, right? Have I tried everything that I could possibly think of to try to turn this around and make it successful? Have I spoken to everyone that I think I can speak to um, to get their advice, to get their thoughts on it? Yes. Have I tried everything? Yes. And so there comes a point where you have to cut the cord, right? You have to make that tough decision because carrying it on and struggling and it just, you know, meandering for another few years is not going to, it's not going to be any easier the more time that has elapsed. And after you shut it down, what did you do after that? Did you take a break or did you start planning your next move? What was in your head at the time? So I've actually been very fortunate to have an amazing support system. My very first angel investor, obviously she knew everything that was going on, right? We communicated on a weekly basis and she was very helpful through through it all. And when she realized that I was going to shut this down, she actually recommended me for a role in a sort of government-led agency under the Ministry of Finance in Malaysia. It was called Magic at the time. It's no longer Magic. It's now merged with something else and they're called Maranti. But at the time, Magic stood for Malaysian Global Innovation and Creativity Center. And one of the things that they wanted to do under Magic was build the very first national accelerator program. It was zero equity. We didn't provide any funding, but we provided space mentorship, expertise, network, access, et cetera. And it was for any company across the world that wanted to expand into Southeast Asia. And so I joined Magic at the time to help them build that accelerator program. And that's what I did. I felt like my experience being a founder could be useful. I knew that the country needed something like this. And the people in Magic were really passionate about building up the ecosystem. After being a founder and then having to shut it down, and you know, it's been like how many years since then, do you feel like there's any big regret that you have from that time? Or do you think that you've had all the closure that you need? I had lots of regrets for years. I actually felt like a failure for years. Now, thankfully, I don't feel that way. Yes, I wish my startup was successful. I wish I had, you know, built something really big and unique. But it has led me to exactly where I am today. Like, if I hadn't built that company, I wouldn't have the empathy that I have and the respect that I have for every single founder I meet today because I know how difficult it is, how many hats you wear, how many challenges you have. I've learned a lot of things about going from zero to one. I have built an amazing network of people in this ecosystem who are extremely supportive and kind and generous, all because of that experience. And I wouldn't be a VC today sitting in Singapore if not for my stint as a founder, which was the thing that led me into this world, right? Into this world of, of startups. So no, I yeah, don't have any regrets now. I think it's all part of the journey. So you said earlier that you had regrets for years. When do you feel like the regrets stopped? Was it because you were starting your role as a VC or did anything else sort of happen? It wasn't one particular thing. It happened a few years ago. Maybe it's just age. I don't know. Time. Uh, just, <laughs> time heals yeah, all things. Time, <laughs> exactly. maybe, and maybe it took some time to, to get over that, right? I think shutting down a company is like, it's like the death of a relationship. It's all you've known for, for so long and to separate yourself from it. I think also with time and then you achieve new things, 
you know, you you say like, hey, I'm I'm not actually a failure. I'm I'm building from that quote unquote failure, right? I'm taking those experiences and I'm doing something better today because of it. I'm helping some. I'm helping other people, right? I'm giving back. I'm yeah. It's it's not been for waste. And then. I think you went through a couple of different roles, like community or program manager, like roles, like after uh, Love Spark. But then I think something that stuck out to me was that you actually did like an EIR program at Entrepreneur First. Did you want to be a founder again at that time? No, I I didn't. And I do not want to be a founder still today. I get asked that question a lot. You know, maybe I can go and build a, a company that has something to do with science again. I toy with <laughs> I toy with the idea every now and then with some of my friends that I met at EF. No, so I actually, I heard about Entrepreneur First when they moved to Singapore. And I thought that their model was actually really interesting. For those of you who don't know what Entrepreneur does is, it's not an accelerated program. It's It starts like, I don't know, in the phase before that, where they take in a cohort of individuals, people who want to build companies, but don't necessarily have an idea that they are fixated onto. They have some idea, they don't have the idea, or they don't know whether that idea is the one that they're going to work on. And they don't have a co-founder, but they have uncovered something unique in the lab or throughout their research years that they feel they can commercialize and build upon. So that was exactly me when I was writing my thesis, right? I had an idea. I didn't know whether this idea was going to be it, but I had ideas that I felt I could commercialize. I didn't have a co-founder. I didn't have the network. I was really young. I didn't have the, the capital. EF actually solves all of those things. And I was extremely skeptical about how they kind of, you know, match people in the cohort, how they help you generate ideas, you know, um, how they find great talent. And so I thought the best way for me to learn about whether this model works and is to join. Uh, <laughs> is to join. So I joined as an EIR entrepreneur in resident, which is really just a fancy word for mentor. And I spend every day of every week um, speaking to founders who join the program. Oh, okay. I thought EIR meant you were going to be a founder in the program. No, so it's a different role. No. Okay. It's a different role. So they call them founders in residence, people who have joined the program to build companies and EIRs are people who help the founders. Oh, okay. And so what did you learn from your EIR semi-spy-like role? <laughs> Figuring out <laughs> well, how it works. <laughs> I, I think like, you know, there is definitely... Uh, high rate of failure. There are lots of people who join that don't end up finding someone that they can work with or want to work with or don't find an idea that they feel they can build on. But there are also so many people who do, right? I think it creates a extremely interesting and fruitful kind of environment for the generation of ideas. Imagine you have different people from different fields of studies. You've got someone from immunology, someone from genetics, someone from chemical engineering. They all have this different expertise coming together and sharing what they've learned and what they've researched and you building on that, right? And so you create great companies out of that. I think the interesting thing that EF did is also not just bring these technical people into the room, but also bring more business-minded potential CEOs into the room to help ensure that each team that was built had a good mix of skill sets to help the company grow. So yeah, and I was exposed to all different types of technologies, everything from, you know, rockets to alternative proteins is extremely interesting time. Okay, from your time at EF and even now as a VC, I think you've seen, you know, people form founding teams, right? And you've seen them in action. Have you seen anything in common with the most successful founder dynamics? So if anyone is looking for a co-founder today, what should they watch out for? I think segregation of roles is extremely important. A clear delineation, right? So like you are the CEO, these are all the things you're in charge of. And the other person actually gives you kind of space to go and run with it. And vice versa, right? So you are the CEO, you're the CFO, this is your responsibility. I'm not going to overstep boundaries and jump into your space and do that as well. For that to happen, 
you have to have a lot of respect and a lot of faith and extremely good comms, right? I think people run into situations where there's no one clear leader, there's no one clear person running the strategy, there's no one clear, clear, clear person in charge of taking on this task. And everyone's like all hands on deck doing everything at the same time. So yeah, good comms, good respect and clear delineation of roles, I think is extremely crucial in the beginning. Could you tell me how you got into VC? Because you went from EF, I think you were a launch manager for most of it actually after being an EIR. Then you joined MVP as VP of Investor Relations. Did you ever really plan on becoming a VC? But it just happened. No, I was toying with a couple of things. So I think it's been, you know, almost three years at Entrepreneur First. Love the team, but I felt like it was time for me to start doing something else. And I was thinking about what I could potentially do. I was thinking maybe I could join a pharmaceutical company or corporate and, you know, do innovation and strategy because of my background. Both building a company as well as in science, pharma company might be interesting. I knew I could join a VC as well, or maybe join another startup, perhaps a startup that had been born at EF and the founders whom I knew very well as well. I knew that if I wanted, if I joined VC, I wanted to join a fund that was small and starting out because I felt like if I joined one of the really big funds and I'm sure you get a whole you know, different type of experience there, but you'd likely be doing something that you're good at and you do that day in and day out. And you're just this tiny cog in this very big machine. I joined MVP because I actually met the founding partner, Mayank. Funny story, I reached out to him on LinkedIn while I was still at EF, not with the goal of joining MVP at all, but with the goal of trying to sell, quote unquote, some of EF companies to the new VC in town. I read that he, you know, MVP had just invested in a seed company. I was like, great, that's my job. I need to know like every seed fund out there so I can get them to invest in EF companies. And so I met my uncle and uh, we got to talking and he was telling me about MVP and, you know, uh, his goals for the future with this company. And after many conversations, after meeting other LPs, after meeting some other founders that MVP had invested in, I decided to join because I feel like being an MVP, I'm on the startup journey again myself. We are MVPs, my like my baby. It's what I'm growing day in and day out. I like that's also called like MVP, <laughs> like minimal exactly. viable product. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a sign you should have known from the beginning. <laughs> I when you joined, did you know that you'd end up being a VC as an, an investor or not? I joined because I wanted to learn what fund management is all about. I think when people think about being a VC, they think that you're sitting on the side of the table, you're having all these interesting companies and founders pitch to you on a day in day out basis. You're attending conferences, you're networking, you're speaking, and that's the life of a VC. It truly isn't. You're not always on buy side. You're selling all the time as well. You're selling to amazing founders who can choose to take money from the biggest funds in the world or you, right? And you have little to no track record, little to no branding compared to these bigger funds. So why should they take money from you? It's something that we think about daily, right? So you're selling to amazing founders. You are selling to LPs and potential investors. And so it isn't all fancy, fun and like, you know, light and fluffy stuff, right? It's you're helping your portfolio companies. And I wanted to do all of this. And I think being in an accelerated program in Magic for a couple of years and then in Entrepreneur First, the one thing that I really craved was being able to work with founders and a company over a long period of time and see it grow and be part of that journey. You know, when you're doing programs, it's extremely cyclical, right? You work with founders for six months or so, and then you hand them off to the fund. And I wanted to be that person. I wanted to be the person that was there to work with founders over years and to be in a very small way part of that journey with them. So how does it actually look like to be a sort of startup fund or I guess an emerging fund? Is it like, what are the challenges of convincing people to take you guys as the investor? And what do you guys do to like fill that gap of like, I guess like less brand than the others? 
Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, having a, a big brand, there's two ways to build that, right? Like you can either put out a lot of content into the world, or you have a great portfolio, a great track record, both of which takes time to build. And we are very young in our journey. We're very early in our journey. And so what I like to tell our founders is, or rather what I like to show the founders is how much value we can bring to the table. We try to work with people for weeks and months before we invest in them. We try to add value, even though we are not writing a check. We try to open doors, even though we haven't yet written a check. We have a very, very strong investor base. Our LPs are, you know, the CEOs of banks, the vice presidents at big tech companies, um, the CEO of hospital groups and hotels. And so we have great people around the table that we can access whenever we need to. They provide extremely good domain knowledge. You know, we can give them a call and ask them to speak to our founders. We have some investors that actually sit on the board of these companies as they have matured. And so we try to share this information with the people that we are speaking to. Because it's obviously so much more than capital, right? The best founders are not just picking funds for capital alone. That's easy enough to find anywhere. It's what else do you bring to the table? And I, I'm sure all funds say pretty much the same thing, but it's in you know, action speak louder. And we do try our very best to be as helpful as possible to each founder without being you know, without breathing down their necks or being or being like a, the co-founder of that company, because that's the last thing we want to do. If you can share, how are like, are there examples that you can share of how you add value even before investing? Like, what does it actually look like? So some of the, the one of the easiest ways to add value before investing, beyond just like asking, you know, the difficult questions and probing their assumptions and hypothesis and providing some strategic advice, you know, which you can easily do around the table. But I think the other things that founders really appreciate is they're likely raising a round. You're likely, or at least for us, we're not going to be taking up the whole round. We're going to be working with other co-founders. And so we try to introduce these companies. We introduce these companies to other good funds. We try to sell this company to other great funds that could come in as well that could complement us. Maybe they are in a different geography access. Maybe they have, you know, specific expertise that we can't bring to the table. So we try to make those introductions for them as well and help them close the round. We introduce them to our network as well, even before we have written that first check, right? So that maybe they get a client thanks to us. Maybe they get a advisor or an angel check thanks to us. It really truly depends on each company. Yeah. As somebody who was a founder and also on another side of the table, which is you're the, I guess, the person pitching founders to to VCs, what were the misconceptions you had about VC that got totally busted when you were when you became a VC yourself? I thought VCs is just quick to say no to every company, right? But actually, I think as as a VC, you're always looking for the positive. You're always looking for reasons to invest in a way. It's easy to say no to companies. It's, you know, saying no, you're going to be like, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have to make mistakes. It's easy not to make mistakes. All right, I'm, I'm probably jumbling up my words here. But what I mean to say is that it is easy to say no quickly without looking for the positive, or at least that's that's me, right? And I think as a fund or as VCs, you're looking for the positive, you're looking for potential, even when there are very few signs. There, These companies are so early, there's very little traction to go on, there's very little data for you to read, and you're truly looking for diamonds in the rough. What are the mental sort of shifts that you had to make in terms of your mindset or the way that you view companies or view things that you had to make when you transitioned into VC? Hmm, that's a really good question. I think before I didn't have any kind of, what's the word for it? Restrictions or, you know, you could just like, if this company was great, invest, right? 
regardless of anything else. As a fund, you're thinking so much more of construction and your overall portfolio. You're thinking about different sectors. Are you overexposed to certain sectors? Are you overexposed or underexposed to certain geographies, uh, different types of business models? You're like kind of curating a portfolio, something that I never thought of before I joined a fund. You're thinking about exits a lot more, right? Then than when I was at Magic or when I was at Entrepreneur First, right? There, you're just thinking about potential, 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 great founders. That's it. Can they raise their seed and A rounds? No, at a fund, you're thinking about much longer term. So we're thinking about, I guess, all of these different parameters before making an investment on top of everything else, right? Like, are the founders amazing? Do they have, like, great product founder fit, this, the market large enough, like all of those other things. And then you've got all of your fund kind of restrictions as well layered on top of that. What's the most difficult part of your role, at least to you personally, as a VC? I still dislike saying no to great companies if they somehow don't fit our mandate or strategy. That's, you know, always a little sad. I get really frustrated when, um, you know, I see founders being too in love or kind of tied to their initial ideas of what they felt could work, even though it's obviously trend, you know, it's becoming clearer and clearer that perhaps they need to change the way they're operating or, you know, the way they're approaching the market or something needs to change, right? And I completely understand this because I was exactly like that. You don't want, it's difficult for people to accept that they are wrong. Um, and it's difficult to make that change. So I guess that's for the companies that are not in our portfolio, the most difficult thing is saying no to com great companies because they just don't fit our mandate. And then for the companies that are in our portfolio, I get frustrated when I see some founders being a little bit too tied to what they think is the best way forward, even though it might not be the best way forward. And they're just not open to listening to us or taking the advice that's coming to them. So I think you've been a founder yourself. You've observed super early stage companies through EF. And as a VC, as you said, you're there for the entire journey, seeing them from the earlier stage up until much later. So seeing different companies start and grow from all these experiences you've had, what are some things that you've actually noticed that might surprise people? Like, do some of the most like promising companies actually pivot a lot? Or do you have any ob observations? I have a lot, right? So I think as a VC, observation number one, as a VC, you're pretty much an individual contributor in the sense that you're responsible for the work that you do and the decisions you make, and then you have very little leverage over the outcome. The only time a fund or VC really has true leverage is when you're making that investment decision. Once the money goes in, you're almost completely dependent on that founding team. And authority doesn't matter. Influence is what matters. So the only way you're able to build influence with your founders is by building an amazing relationship with them, right? And that takes time. They got to feel like you're their friend, got to feel like you truly have their back so that they can come to you and share the difficult truths, right? I don't want founders to only be telling me the nice stuff. I want them to be telling me what they're struggling with, what's not going right so that we can help them overcome those obstacles and so that they truly trust uh, our opinion and our advice. You've got to build that relationship so that you're able to influence them. I think also many people or funds kind of focus first on the founders. And yes, we do as well. There are definitely some innate qualities that I think enable certain founders to be able to unlock huge opportunities and to grow. But I argue that actually when it comes to evaluating opportunities, it's equally and maybe even more important to assess the market structures. So whenever we make an investment, we're always like founders make sense, founding team makes sense, and then market. Market, we put so much of emphasis on the market and the strength of that market structure. Because if you have a great, like a super strong founding team that's even able to pivot they are going to be trapped in that market that they're already in. 
many great teams get taken out by a terrible market. But if you're in a great market, I feel even if the initial idea itself doesn't pan out, it doesn't matter so much because you're operating in this great market and a great founding team will be able to maneuver their way. So yeah, I think that's something else that when I was an entrepreneur first and when I was at, at Magic, never thought about as much. Are there things that you wish founders did more or did less of? I, my as, gosh, as somebody I like, who's been a founder yourself, I think you would know, right? Yeah, yeah. I feel like every VC is, is probably going to tell you the same thing. I wish founders communicated more. You know, and I, I understand that they have 50 million things on their plates to do, right? But I really wish they spoke to us more. That, you know, as I mentioned, they told us the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Your founders are people that are already invested in you. They're invested in your business. They want you to succeed. They're on the same page, right? If you go MIA after accepting capital from a fund and it comes to your next round of financing or it comes to a time where you are in trouble and you need help, that relationship's not built at all. There's no reason why a fund would like go to the ends of the world to help you as opposed to uh, someone else, another team that has been in constant communication. And, you know, we feel like we've been true partners together rather than just an investor. For our first-time founders, like, what would you say are ways they can build that relationship? Like, what do they even communicate? What are the kinds of touch points that they can have? Is this done over, like, monthly reports, quarterly reports? Or is this done actually just through one-on-one -on -one chats from time to time that don't even have to be related to like the metrics at all. Yeah. And I think it's great that you're asking this question. Like I am all for no question is dumb. And I've actually had some founders ask me that, like, you know, as we're closing the round and, and they know that we're investing, we're going to be investing. They like literally come and ask me like, Hey, Tanja, like how is the best way for me to communicate with funds with yourself? Right. And for us at MVP, yes, we do collect like the metrics as data reporting and all of that stuff. But when we make an investment, we have scheduled calls with our founders, at least for the first few months every week, because, you know, here's my risk setting strategy. We're talking to them about hiring their team and building culture and setting strategy for the next couple of months. And, you know, it's quite intense in that period. And then we kind of trickle off so that we have calls every month instead of schedule calls every month instead of every week right now they're just hopefully often building we are accessible anytime so we're on whatsapp with all of our founders they ping us whenever they call us whenever like but this is just what's booked in the calendar so that this is time where both of us are free and we know we're going to catch up and stuff and then when it comes close to fundraising again it's when we start picking this up so instead of monthly calls again it goes to maybe bi-weekly sorry, bi-monthly or weekly calls, because now we're thinking about narrative, right? We're thinking about the pitch deck. We're thinking about putting together a list of investors that they should be speaking to. Who do you approach first? Who do you approach second, right? And how do you go about building that database of investors so you get your round closed? Yeah, so that's how we approach it. I'm sure every fund does it differently, but that's how we work with our portfolio. What do you guys usually talk about in those weekly calls? Is it like updates from what's going on? Like if you set on call one, you're going to implement this. Do you have to report it on like week call number five? Like what's inside these calls? <laughs> so it's usually a little bit more open-ended. Like obviously we have certain things that we want to cover, but it's also, especially in the beginning, like just getting to know these people, right? Getting to know and you're doing, you're obviously doing a lot of this even before you make that investment, getting to know the team, their background stories and what motivates them, et cetera. But the more time you spend with people, the closer you get, right? So we just, you know, talk about random life stuff as well as how's the business going and what's the hurdles that they've been running into? What experiments have they been trying out? Uh, is there anything that they can be tweaking? So experiments, do they need any intros do they need us to you know what whatever like it's different for every company but it, i would say it's a mixture of like true business strategy setting your not stars keeping track of goals as well as everything else because founders you know as i said and as i know are under a lot of stress they have very little time a day they're trying to accomplish a lot 
And they sometimes get into the weeds of things, into the details a little bit too much, and they're not able to zoom out and look at the business from the, as a whole. And I think that's a, a job that an investor can play very well, is help them zoom out and focus on the important instead of all the little things that they are running and doing on a daily basis. I have another question about like VC. Coming into the role, did you know that you would do a lot of this sort of I guess, value creation work or value add work as a VC? No, it wasn't really truly defined. So when I was speaking to Mayank, you know, one of the things that we decided on from from the get-go was that I wanted to be more involved on everything to do with running a fund that isn't investing. So, I mean, people don't really talk about the side of running and managing a fund, right? People just always talk about making investments, managing the portfolio, exiting those investments, uh, exiting those investments, which is great. And I'm still involved in parts of that. But there is so much more, right? There is reporting to your existing LPs. There is fundraising from other LPs. There is setting strategy for the new fund. There is thinking about other products that you could potentially launch, you know, vertical specific products, for example. There is compliance, there is reporting, there is dealing with fund administrators and legal, et cetera, et cetera. And this whole side of it, I had zero experience and zero exposure. And I felt like this was the perk of being in a small fund because you can kind of, in a way, pick and choose what you wanted to be exposed and what you wanted to learn. I was like you know, completely lost in the beginning because I didn't even know what I didn't know. Like that's how much I didn't know. And I'm very lucky to have an extremely amazing mentor who is my uncle at MVP, right? I remember there was a day where we were going through a new PPM for like a new fund we were launching, right? And he said, can you go through this and, you know, highlight anything that you think doesn't make sense or any commercial things that you think should be changed, whatever, right? I started reading it and then I sent him a message and I said, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be looking for. It's like, I don't even, yeah, I genuinely don't know what to highlight. Like what's an abnormal term? What is, you know, and so he said, fine. Come into office, we literally flashed every page of that few hundred page document on the screen and he went through it line by line with me. This is what this means. This is what it means for the fund. This is why it's important for LPs. This is why it's important for us. You know, this is how it could be worded differently. You know, like all of these things. So it's been an extremely challenging time for me because I've hit massive learning curve, massive steep learning curve, but also been amazing in that sense because I've just learned so, so much. Do you feel like this is the kind of work you would want to do for the rest of your life, like invest and support companies? Or is there a part of you that still wants to do something else? No, I think this is it for like me. Like you found I'm, it. I'm ab- uh, yeah, I'm absolutely loving it. I'm I'm loving both what people might think is the boring side of being a fund manager, which is everything I just spoke about. But I'm also still exposed to all these amazing companies. And I also still speak to these amazing founders. And so, you know, the, my love for investing and being on the investing side hasn't gone away. And I'm, I still have the opportunity to be involved in that as well. What do you do outside of work, like on weekends or like after hours? I drink an obscene amount of coffee. So Amanda, if you're ever in Singapore, I'd be happy to share a list of all the best cafes with you and take you to a few as well. I love coffee. I love brunches. Uh, so my husband and I, we try to to go out on the weekends. We go for a late brunch. We have, you know, two two cups of coffee and then we try to read. And I try to read books that have absolutely nothing to do with my work because I feel like that's just my downtime and it makes for a more interesting person. Um, Yeah. I also watch a lot of Netflix. I don't want to tell you what I watch because that'll be quite embarrassing, but I like to watch. You can imagine kind of trashy shows on Netflix. I mean, it's a way to unwind, right? Disassociate from the world. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I also like to run. So I run um, when I can. Uh, That's my way of unwinding. 
I guess wrap up. I have one last question for you that I ask everyone in the podcast, and that is outside of work, what's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life, whether that's something you want to achieve this month, this year, or even in the next 10, 20 years, what would that be? Better relationships with the people that matter, quality relationships with the people that matter in my life. Um, time is finite and it's been a lot of time at work right now. I am also making it a point to carve out time for family and friends because at the end of the day, that's truly what matters. The relationships you build, the people that you have in your world, right? In your life, your support system, your 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 gang, so to speak. And I think I focused on work for a long time and it's time for me to really focus on family as well. What does a quality relationship look like to you? Is that like spending more time with them or is it specific experiences doing certain things? No, for me, it's just spending time with them. Just, you know, talking to them, right? Calling my grandpa regularly, right? And I am not saying, I'm not blaming this on work or anything like that. I'm just bad at carving out time to do this right like obviously I've carved out time to watch Netflix but I haven't carved out time to spend with the people that really matter to me that's my my I guess the thing that I need to work on uh, is totally on me and I just need to do much better um, moving forward well thank you so much Anuja I feel like I learned so much from you and it was really so great to, to hear your story I feel like I could feel it like playing like a movie in my mind <laughs> Because there's so many different transitions. I know. But hopefully I'm done with the transitions, right? Like hopefully <laughs> this is it. And as far as the fund will have me, I will be here and uh, doing what I love to do every day. 